Thank you, Matt. Uh, please have a seat. We're going to uh, continue our studies in the book of Philippians tonight, but before we do that, let me ask you a question which some of you will be able to answer and some of you might struggle to answer, depending on your generation. Just put your hand up if you've written a letter recently with a piece of paper and a pen, like in the last week, the last month. Now, let's do it, let's do it this way, the last day, the last week... Ooh. the last month, the last six months, the last year, the last five years. Okay, let's try another question. Pop your hand up if you haven't written a letter with a piece of paper and a pen ever. All right, it wasn't quite the answer I was expecting, but there you go. Now, now that you've got your head around uh, writing a letter, easier questions, if you're writing a letter, what are some of the elements that you would normally include in a letter. Think about a letter that you're writing to someone, it might just be a friend, you know, you're uh, getting in touch with someone, you're going to send them some news. What are some of the things that would normally be included in a letter in terms of the sequence of how it's laid out? What's the first thing you would normally do? Before the salutation, Darren, even before that, think of an old-fashioned letter, the first thing would be, Janita... The date, yes, you see, these devices of ours automatically send emails with the date, the time. You can even tell to the second when somebody sent the email, right? But an old-fashioned letter, you would write the date. Then a salutation, how would that normally be expressed? Dear Fred or dear Ralph or dear whatever, uh, then what would come after that? Some sort of a greeting usually. Hey, I hope you are well. Uh, you got over your rabies or whatever it might be. You know, <laughs> you know, some kind of well wishing, right? Uh, hoping that the person is travelling okay in life. Uh, after that, what comes next? Yeah, the body of the letter. What you want to? I'm writing to you because. Uh, I'm getting a new dog, do I need to get it immunised or something, you know, that sort of stuff. At the end of the letter, what comes towards the end of the letter? Yeah, kind of rounding it up, summarising it, you know, it's been good to think of you, whatever. And then at the end, the last thing, the signature. And if your signature is like some people's signature, you probably want to write your name under it as well so that they know who it actually was that sent the letter. Now, that's how we would go about writing a letter. Remember, the letter to the Philippians is a letter. It's an ancient letter and it conforms to many of those patterns that we've just talked about. So, if you backtrack with me for a few moments to Philippians chapter 1, there's some things that are slightly different in ancient letters in, in these times, but we have some similarities. And Chapter 1, verse 1, the sender is identified. It comes from Paul and Timothy. Paul talks about Paul and Timothy in partnership. Uh, qualification, servants of Christ Jesus. The address there, who's this letter addressed to? To all the saints of Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So it's a letter that has an address on it. And then in verse 2, what comes next? There is a greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a bad greeting to use if you're writing a letter or an email either. After that, what do we find in verse 3? This is not a trick question, you can call out the answer. What do we find in verse 3? There is a particular thing that we find there. 
Yes, an expression of thanks. Very common in ancient letters for the author to express thanks. I'm thankful for whatever and Paul does this. There's a prayer there that we see and that's um, expressed there through to verse 9 where Paul explains his prayer. Matt's already covered that. And then from verse 12 onwards, there is the newsy part of the letter which goes for some time through the chapters that we have. Of course, there were no chapters or verses in the original letter all the way to the end of the uh, letter to chapter 4, verse 21, where Paul gives his final greetings, where he says, Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me, and so on. Now, the passage that we're going to look at tonight fits very, very much in the middle of the newsy part of Paul's letter. And it does actually feel very much like the newsy part of a letter. We're going to read it in just a moment. It's a part of the letter that does not have uh, a lot of theology or doctrine uh, buried, well, not, I shouldn't say buried, I should say it doesn't appear to have a lot of theology or doctrine running through it. There are some things buried in it that we're going to unearth in a few moments. And it's a passage which is quite often skipped over. In fact, I will confess when I first planned the schedule for preaching through this book, through this letter, I omitted this passage. I thought we will just jump to the really interesting bits and then Matt got hold of it and reworked it and included this passage and then, bless his heart, he gave it to me to preach. <laughs> Actually, I don't think I can blame you for that. We kind of had a mutual kind of understanding in that process. So, for some, and even uh, famous people like Karl Barth, the German theologian, would have looked at this passage and said, you know, if, if it wasn't in a, a, a Christian letter, we wouldn't even recognise it as specifically Christian. And yet, there are some things in here that we will unpack. Let's uh, read through it uh, from Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through to verse 30, the passage that we're going to look at tonight. I hope in the Lord Jesus, Paul says, to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident that the Lord, uh, I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because he heard, uh, because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on also me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. Well, as I said, this passage sounds a lot like a letter that you might receive from a relative in England who's planning to make a trip to Australia for a wedding or something, doesn't it? I hope to be able to come 
and see you by the end of the year if we've saved up enough money. If Sophie can get some time off work, then she'll come ahead and uh, is looking forward to seeing you all. Patrick's been unwell. We hope that by the time we're ready to travel, he's well again. But is that all this passage is? Is it just a little bit of news from Paul back to the church in Philippi? And the answer to that question is, no, it's not. We need to take seriously the words of Scripture which say, and Paul wrote these words to Timothy on another occasion, in fact, to Timothy chapter 3, he said, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we dive into this passage, there's going to be something that God is going to say to us through it as we unpack it. The original plan that I had this week was to speak to you about joy in gospel community because here we have an expression of community that Paul found much joy in. He found much joy in his relationship with Timothy. He found much joy in his relationship with Epaphroditus as we see from this passage and as we look at the scope of Paul's writings, much joy in his relationship with the churches that he ministered to and with others who he ministered alongside of. But as uh, I was thinking about that through this week, I thought to myself, you know, there's some deeper things, even more foundational to Christian joy that are worth unpacking from this passage. And so the question that I want to ask tonight is, where is the joy? Where are the deeper things of joy in the passage that we're looking at? And the first one you'll actually find in verse 19. The first thing that Paul says is this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. I hope in the Lord Jesus. Now that might sound like anything any of us would say, doesn't it? I hope to uh, be able to have a day off soon. I hope to get a pay rise. I hope to something. You finish the sentence. You've all used that expression, right? Paul uses that expression and he uses it in a particular way. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. He's got some plans to send Timothy to Philippi. But he expresses these plans in a very particular way. He chooses his words very carefully. He could have said, my hope is in Christ Jesus or my hope is Christ or my hope is in Jesus, good and appropriate because our hope's found nowhere else. But which word did he use that I've not mentioned there in that last couple of sentences? My hope is in the Lord Jesus. That's significant. Take notice of that word. That's a very deliberate inclusion uh, by Paul, more significant that we, than we might realise because what Paul is actually saying is the plans that I have to send Timothy to you soon uh, will, will happen only if they are ordained by the Lord, if it's according to God's will. So let's translate this verse for a second. Uh, if it's the Lord's will, then I will send Timothy to you soon. And Paul is expressing something really, really significant and something that brings much joy uh, for those who are able to understand that. Let's see if it's going to come up here. There is joy living under the Lordship of Christ. And this is a place that Paul consistently placed himself under the Lordship of Christ. Submitting to Jesus Christ means allowing Jesus to have authority in life. How can this bring joy well I like to use this illustration I used it in the morning service in a different way a little while ago some years ago we bought a dog <coughs> and we got him as a pup who was how old 12 weeks or something like that and the person who sold us the dog 
uh, recommended to us a couple of books about dog training because the last thing we wanted was an untrained dog. Very painful to live with. And in fact, the emphasis of the book that we read uh, and uh, was confirmed by the person who sold us the dog was this. Don't let the dog think it's the boss. Now, the way that we do that is by making sure that the dog understands that it's not the boss. And as I've explained to some of you in private conversation and as I say in the morning service, um, a puppy wants to be the boss. You've seen that, haven't you? And the puppy wants to be uh, the top dog or the alpha, if you like. And so we'll do all sorts of things to try and be the alpha. And we humans unwittingly contribute to that by every time we go into a room where the puppy is, oh, there you are, nice puppy, you know, give it the attention. And it thinks, whoa, I'm the most important person in the world. And people unwittingly reinforce this stereotype or this, this idea by leaving the food out for the dog because uh, the, it's the alpha is the one who finds the food. And if a puppy's got constant access to food, it thinks, hey, I'm the boss, I'm the alpha. And what happens is it grows up thinking it's in charge, a bit like a two-year-old in the house. Now, here's a question. How many households would be well-managed by a two-year-old? What would happen to a two-year-old if it was left? If a two-year-old was left to manage the house, you're shaking your head. It would be a disaster. And the fact of the matter is, all of the evidence that I could find have said, if you allow your dog to think it's the alpha when it's a pup, you're going to end up with a neurotic dog, because it doesn't have the emotional capacity to do that. It needs to grow into that role. If you'd asked me to be a father and, uh, and a, 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 par well, a parent and a father, that's kind of the same thing, uh, a husband and a father and a homeowner when I was 12, I would have freaked out. I wasn't ready for that sort of stuff. Didn't have the emotional maturity, didn't have the intelligence to start with. Not ready for that. And the point of this illustration is this. In the same way that that puppy needed to live under the authority of someone over it to grow in a healthy and mature way so we too do best when we live under the lordship of christ you understand that we have actually been designed by god to live under his lordship and his authority and when we say to god i'm not going to do that i don't need to do that uh, i'm going to move out from underneath that we place ourselves into a position of authority we call that sin and it is sinful it's a result of sin in our lives where we think we can do that. We place ourselves out from under that authority and we place ourselves into a very vulnerable place. And let's be honest, lots of people do that and they seem to get on very well in life. But it's not the way God created us to live. There's actually much joy, much satisfaction, much uh, peace, much less anxiety as we live in that place under God's authority. Not only joy, but a whole lot less stress. Let me give an example of, uh, of what that looks like. When uh, we were moving here to Wodonga, one of the really big things we needed to do was think about where we we're going to live. And so put the house that we had in the hands of an agent and sold the house and then started looking around Wodonga at houses. Where are we going to live in Wodonga? Let's do the work of looking, let's do the research, let's go and see some houses, but let's pray too and acknowledge that even choosing a house is something that God leads and guides in. 
And so we did that. I'm the sort of person, when it comes to researching that sort of stuff, Diana will tell you I'll spend hours checking out market trends, looking at the... Uh, how many of you actually checked out the flood zones before you bought your house? Hands, I'm a bit worried about yours. It's pretty close to the flood zone there. I looked at where the, uh, where the bushfire protection areas were. I looked at council overlays. I did also, which way does the house face? Where's the sun going to go? Which is the east? Which is the west? Even Diana can tell you which way is east and west now. I'm impressed, but <laughs> probably only because I kind of said, this is important, you know, do all that kind of research uh, before you actually get to that place. But pray and ask God to lead and guide. And so we came to that place where eventually we found a house, we thought this one looks okay, let's make an offer on the house, told the agent, here it is, and went away. And you know what? After that, you just don't stress because it's in the hands of the Lord, the Lord. And it's not a case of, uh, you know, taking control and doing everything myself. And it's not a case of just being lazy and saying, oh, well, God can sort it out. He knows we need a house. We need a house, sorry. Let's just wait until He provides one amazingly, miraculously. It's a kind of both and. I think Matt put it this morning as uh, in this way. This is why you should come to morning church. You get double the bang for your buck. It's God working in us and God working it out. Uh, sorry, us working it out, God working in us uh, and us working it out. It's a partnership, this Lordship of Christ stuff. It's us actually living under the Lordship of Christ and being able to exercise uh, the, the responsibilities that we have, make decisions and let me tell you, it takes a lot of the stress out of life because as soon as we'd said to that agent, here it is, take it or leave it, didn't worry about it. It was in God's hands. Living under the Lordship of Christ does take a lot of that stress out of life. Second clue uh, this evening, let's move on. If we can get rid of the dog, here we go. Uh, the first one, as uh, you see there, there is joy living under the Lordship of Christ. The second clue as to where true joy can be found according to this passage, uh, you will find in verses 20 to 23 and 25 to 27, can be summed up by saying this... Uh, true joy, there is joy in prioritising the needs of others. Now, if you have a look at verse 20 with me, Paul says to the Philippians, I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. A very significant uh, verse there. Paul had a couple of cracking companions uh, that he describes here in this passage. His relationship with Timothy was particularly life-giving for him. I have no one else who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Another way of translating that statement would be to say this, I have no one with the same mind as him. Now that's really significant because if you remember a couple of weeks ago when Ruth was preaching, uh, that word mind came up. In Philippians chapter 2, just back up there to chapter 2, verse 2, Paul appealed to the Philippians to be what? Anyone got it? Philippians chapter 2, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. So there's a unity in having the same mind. But what mind was that? Well, if you go to verse 5, 
you'll find there that Paul says in their relationship to one another you're to have the same attitude of mind as Jesus Christ be like-minded have the same attitude of mind and here we have uh, Timothy who is of the same mind doing what Paul says in verse 3 if we kind of jumping backwards and forwards a bit here do nothing he says out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility consider others better than yourselves true joy can be found in serving other people by prioritizing other people over yourself and why because that reflects the mind of christ it's born out of a relationship with jesus you can do it even if you're not a christian you can work at it and you can do it reasonably successfully but true joy is actually found when we do it Uh, because of the lordship of christ in our lives when we submit to christ as lord and serve others uh, there is true joy for us now some in the philippian church might have said hey well that's that's hard how do you who does that who actually prioritizes the needs of others and paul says well take a look at timothy here's a good example of one who's doing exactly as i want you Philippians to do Timothy as an act of obedience to the lordship of Christ in his life oriented his life away from thinking of himself first to thinking of others he did it consistently and Paul admired him for that and thinking of others before yourself is not just an ideal or a notion or an aspiration or goal it's actually the fruit of a life submitted to Christ it's one of the fruits of the spirit if you like the service of others it reflects the heart of Christ in us. Jesus who said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. It's the fruit of the life of Christ in us. And for those of you who've experienced that, you'll know the deep joy that there is in that. Some of you have been to youth camp, uh, probably young adults camp, you do the same. You know the joy that there is in receiving a warm fuzzy you know what I mean about a warm fuzzy? It's kind of a little bit of a weird word, right? But it's lovely to kind of pop open the envelope and see the stuff that someone else has written and acknowledge that there are others expressing their appreciation of you and encouraging you and building you up. But there's joy, isn't there, too, in doing that for others. There's joy to be found in lifting others up, in building others up. It's a joy that comes from the heart of Christ in us as we serve others. I was going to do a little practical exercise this evening. You can do this um, just yourself if you like. Uh, Preaching often is a lot about talking and not about responding, but here's an opportunity to respond. What is something you could do this week to build someone else up? Just give that some thought for a moment. Don't talk to anyone else because one of the tricks, I reckon, to true joy is doing it secretly sometimes just between you and God what could you do this week to actually build someone else up to lift someone else up to encourage someone else take a moment to think about that make a plan Uh, do something through this week and see what God does in response you might be surprised at the joy that it brings you as you bring joy to others the third clue to uh, to true joy is uh, is a tougher one and it relates to Epaphroditus. We don't know much about Epaphroditus. This is, uh, there's only a couple of mentions of him in the scripture. Uh, Paul describes him as a brother 
a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. There's a lot of affection there. He apparently uh, was a native of the city of Philippi. He had been sent by the church with a gift. We assume it was a monetary gift to support Paul's work. It would appear that he had given himself and had been commissioned, in fact, by the church to give himself to the work with Paul and he'd given himself with such energy and enthusiasm and dedication in perhaps difficult circumstances that he had exhausted himself he had become ill, we don't know what, uh, what the cause was, we don't know the nature of his illness, but Paul says uh, that he almost died for the work of Christ, verse 30, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. Here's the third principle uh, for uh, true joy. There is joy in sacrificing self. Now that's countercultural. It's not a message that you're going to get uh, outside the church in fact the message is the opposite uh, there is joy in serving self look after number one make sure you're okay do the very best to protect your finances your world your relationships but the scripture tells us there's actually joy to be found in sacrificing ourselves for the gospel we know that timothy had been tested over the years epaphroditus clearly suffered where could there possibly be joy in this? Let me tell you a story and just kind of start rounding out our message tonight with this story to illustrate this point. Wind the clock back to uh, the 1930s. Uh, 1930s Germany, the Nazi party was rising under the leadership of Adolf Hitler and a large part of the German church came under the spell of that charismatic leader. In September 1933, a resolution was passed at a national church synod removing all pastors and leaders from, a, from the church who were Jewish or had Jewish ancestry. In November that same year, 20,000 members of the Christian church voted for the removal of the Old Testament from the Bible because it was Jewish. Those two actions were considered to be heresy by some in the church and a number of pastors broke away, forming what became known as the Confessing Church, a branch of the church that refused to acquiesce to the Nazis, who had influenced quite strongly the others, and said that Jesus actually was the head of the church, not the Fuhrer. One of the key leaders of the Confessing Church was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might have heard of him. He was staunch in his stand against Nazism, and became a target of restrictive um, rules and ultimately persecution by the regime. He was <coughs> me, denounced as a pacifist. He was denounced as an enemy of the state. Just before the outbreak of war, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to travel to America, was invited to America to help German refugees and to teach. And although without doubt this would have meant an easier road for him through the war, he wrote the following... I've concluded that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. He went on to say, Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and therefore destroying civilization. 
I know which one of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make this choice from security. And so Bonhoeffer actually caught the last steamer back from America to Germany before the outbreak of war. And in doing so, made the hard choice, the sacrificial choice to follow God and to take a stand for the gospel as an obedient servant of Jesus over the comfortable life that had been mapped out for him in America by others. He was prepared to sacrifice himself for the sake of the gospel. Did it make him happy? No. Did it make his life easier? No, not at all. He was actually imprisoned. Uh, he was implicated in a plot to take Hitler's life. He was hanged two weeks before the prison camp that he was in was liberated by the Americans. He sacrificed himself for the sake of the gospel. It's unlikely that you and I will be called upon to make that kind of sacrifice. But there are other sacrifices that we might be made or uh, might uh, be called on to make. There's a lovely story I remember of a, an elderly couple who had uh, heard the call to mission and had spent their life, this is going back quite some time, had spent their life labouring for God in Africa. And it was hard work. They had lived out there in Africa in very primitive conditions for many, many years, serving faithfully, living amongst the people that they were serving. They saw very little in terms of growth or movement for the gospel. They saw much tragedy, much grief. They experienced the loss of one of their own children. They saw their children grow up and go back to their home. Uh, they served faithfully for years and years and then came time for them to retire. Uh, they climbed aboard a ship that was heading home with one suitcase, that was all they had, their entire worldly possessions uh, totally encapsulated in that one suitcase. A life of sacrifice for the gospel. And they got on board the ship and they travelled back wondering what sort of reception they would receive when they got home and they were delighted to see when they were approaching port, I'm not sure which port it was, big sign saying, welcome, streamers, people, crowds, and the husband said to his wife, look, look at all this, look at the welcome, we were hardly expecting this, this is delightful, isn't it? And as they were preparing to receive this wonderful welcome, suddenly it hit them, the welcome was not for them, it was for some celebrities who were travelling on the same ship. And as they disembarked, they walked with some uh, heaviness in their hearts down the, what's that plank, not the, uh, they walked the plank, the gangway, the gangplank, off the ship, you know, the crowds had dispersed. They'd gone with the celebrities, whoever they were. And, uh, and they said, wow, God, what's all this about? You know, we've given so much. We've sacrificed so much. We've given our lives for the gospel. And this is the welcome home that we get. And the Lord spoke to them in that moment and said, you're not home yet. We're called to sacrifice our lives for the gospel for something far bigger than we see here on this earth, something far greater that God's got planned for us, something wonderful that God has in store. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for your word, for your word that speaks to us, for your word that uh, teaches us, for your word that certainly in light of these uh, last reflections challenges us too. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have. Hope that's grounded in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are Lord. Oh, we need you as Lord. 
We need you to have authority. We need you to be bigger than we are. Because if you were a God that we could conceive, uh, we would not feel called to worship you. But you are Lord. And this evening we bow before you as Lord. We thank you, Father, for the partnership that we see expressed here in uh, the gospel uh, that uh, Paul shares with Timothy and Epaphroditus. We thank you, Lord, for Timothy, who was the uh, example that Paul held up of someone who sacrificed himself for others. And we pray that you will help us to continue to experience joy as we serve others. And we do, Lord, too, seek to sacrifice ourselves for the gospel in whatever shape or way that looks. Lord, help us to be courageous enough to step into those places where sacrifice is necessary. Help us to be uh, mindful of what you are doing in those places to join the work that you are working at, to partner with you in the work that you are calling us to. Father, we give you praise and glory too that there is a home that you are calling us to that we look forward to, not a home here on earth, but a home in heaven, a home where we trust as we walk faithfully with you. We will hear those words of the scripture too. Well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, we thank you again for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.